Welcome to Gay Mystery Podcast, featuring interviews with renowned LGBTQ authors and up-and-coming talent of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. I'm your host, Brad Shreve, and Justine Adamick is here with her weekly recommendation. Hey, Justine. Yeah. I didn't okay. tell you. I didn't tell you who the guest was this week. No, but you did tell me that it was a slightly longer interview, so I got to be quick and snappy. <laughs> I I'm not going to make you guess because I'll put you on the spot. But he is one of your favorite authors. Oh well, you know I'm going to start guessing wrong. You're not putting me on the spot. You're putting all the authors on the spot that I forget. Exactly. It's Frank W. Butterfield. Oh, I love him very much. Yes, yes. he is and, one of my favorites, and he's always entertaining to talk to. Yep, I need to yep say. he is. Okay, so that's terrific. Now let's get right down to business here. Okay. All right. I am reviewing Lake on the Mountain by Jeffrey Round. Uh, Jeffrey Round is uh, very well known. This book is the first in the Dan Sharp mystery series. There are six books out, and there's at least one more planned. You probably know better than I did because you recently interviewed him. And this book, the first one, won the Landa Literary Award for Best Gay Mystery the year it came out. So this is this is a phenomenal book by a phenomenal author. Highly, highly recommended. It's getting a glowing recommendation. Lake on the Mountain is not a generic lake on a on a generic mountain. the The story is set in Toronto, and the Lake on the Mountain is a real lake. In, uh, in on Prince Edward Island, it is higher level than the lake around it, and it, it's kind of got a weird effect. And nobody knows exactly how it is filled. So you've got this this water level that's higher than the water level around it, and not really draining out, but it but it's filling up from somewhere. They think it may be an underground uh, underground spring. But the, the lake is inc- is incredibly deep. So that's the real lake that that he is basing the book on. Uh, it was funny. I looked it up on the Internet to see whether it was really a real lake. And people said, oh, we drove here and we looked at it and it was not much to look at. And I'm like, well, that, if you don't know it's being fed by an underground spring or something other unknown, you don't really get the full feel of it. It just looks like a lake. Well, Jeffrey would know he is Canadian. He is Canadian. He does live in Toronto. And this was, I am sure that everybody in that part of Canada knows where this is and knows about the the whole history. But for those of us living in the U.S., I'm not sure how many people would know that. I picked it up and thought it was just, so here's the lake on the mountain. But it's the actual name of the lake. All right. So that's where this goes. What happens is, the, the title comes from the fact that the there he's going to a wedding. He is, right, let me give you his background. He's got a kid. He slept with a woman once and she got pregnant. She wanted to have an abortion. And he said, nope, nope, I'll raise it. So he has this kid who is in high school uh, that, he, that lives with him. Uh, he's got a best friend. And then he's got a lover who doesn't treat him particularly well. Uh, but they've been together for a year and they're going to a wedding on a private yacht on this lake on the mountain. 
the first quarter of the book uh, really kind of sets up his life and his relationships. And it's, it's very well written. It draws you in and, and you get a real sense with flashbacks and everything. You get to know this character very well and, and he's fully developed in this first part. He's a missing persons investigator and, you know, he solves a lot of little cases. He's, you know, he does this file, that file. And then there's one file that he is tracking down through most of the book. Uh, so there's actually, I think, three mysteries in the book. It starts out with a, uh, the prologue is back 20 years at the Lake of the Mountain with uh, somebody standing there and trying to decide whether to kill himself or run off or whatever. Um, and then you don't get back to that for quite some time. What happens in the middle of the book after the, they go to the wedding after the first quarter of development and there's a murder on, at the wedding. And you think, oh, this is a great murder. As it, as it turns out, that, that gets solved pretty quickly. And then you go back death or disappearance that was set up in the prologue. And then it gets, it gets solved and that solution suddenly gets a hole in it. And then uh, by the time, by the by the end, it, it, it's really very satisfying. You've got a lot of interesting things where he figures it out, but then there was a clue that he missed. And so as you're adding on the clues, you see the clues, but you can't quite put, fit the pieces together without. You don't know what the real solution is until he knows what the real solution is. So it's great. And it's a glowing. It's a glowing and it. It's a little intriguing also, but it well-deserved it slammed a literary award. Well, you know, every week I tell you I'm going to add one of your books to my list. Oh, gosh, I know. I, and, you know, I'm not, I, I, you know, I, I now know that when you say I'm going to add it to the list, yeah, you're really adding to the list. I don't even think you're lying about adding it to the list. But, you know, I think you're lying when you say you're going to fin- finally get to those books way at the uh, bottom. Uh, the surprise is this is one I read. Oh, Good. I I loved it. And as you kind of alluded to so much of it, it is about the character. It's almost one of those novels where you don't even care if there's a mystery because the characters are so interesting. Yes. I want to know what's going on in their lives, but then I'm grateful. It's a mystery because you have them both together and it turns into an excellent book. So I agree with you. This had, yeah, this had three mysteries, which really was a lot of fun. It's not centered on the single mystery from beginning to end. He's got three mysteries which uh, because he's a missing persons investigator, one can, you know, one can see how he gets caught into the mysteries. Well, the other thing is you said you didn't really have anything to present on Requeer Tales this week. Right. I, I did want to let you know, I am currently reading Simple Justice by John Morgan Wilson. Oh, isn't it a great book? I, I am totally lost in that world. It's, it's a fantastic <laughs> book. It makes you feel like it's a real thing. You're following the news story of the time, right? And then exactly. you realize, oh, it's fiction. It's really fiction. So yeah, either the either these books, book. I, I agree with you. I would recommend them. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so we'll see you next week, and I'm looking forward to Frank. Okay. Hi, this is Brad. Not only do I interview authors, I write novels, too. Check out my Mitchell Riley mystery series on my website, bradshreve.com. Although Frank W. Butterfield worships San Francisco, he lives at the beach on another coast. Born on a windy day in November of 1966, 
He was elected president of his high school Spanish club in the spring of 1983. After moving across these United States like a rapid-fire pinball, he now makes his home in a hurricane-proof apartment built in 1926 with superior water pressure. While he hasn't met any dolphins personally, that invitation is always open. Frank, you've had that invitation to dolphins open for quite a while, and uh, it hasn't happened yet. Well, it hasn't happened yet, and I'm probably uh, better off by not having them come up to meet me because the state of Florida does not look kindly at sort of carousing with the wildlife. But dolphins, I have watched dolphins actually come up to people, like to kind of play with them, and the people always back up, which I think is smart. But don't throw them in the bathtub or anything. Well, first you have to pick it up, <laughs> uh, which is like, you know, they're about the size of a tuna. So that's, they're gigantic, essentially. Well, about I as wanna, big as we are. Yeah, they're, I think they would be pretty heavy. Yeah. Well, I want to back, welcome back, my friend. And it's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Uh, before we talk about anything, we must talk, because I'm always fascinated, about how prolific you are. Your your first novel released in 2016. Yep. And you've already published 67 stories. Right. How in the hell do you do it? Well, I just keep writing and um, I don't plot. That helps. <laughs> uh, and it's just a lot of fun. That's really what it comes down to. So uh, loving what you're doing makes a difference. Yep. And I also write what I want to read. I think that's probably almost more important than the fact that I like to write. I would say that's, I was running through that dilemma recently of feeling like, should I please my, please my audience? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm writing what I want to read. So that is, that is a to, to be continued on my end. Well, and the other thing is that since you don't actually know what your audience wants, um, because, you know, well, I can't speak for you, but I know I don't. And every time I think I do, because I have that thought recurring quite a bit, I remind myself, I don't really know. And it's actually none of my business. They like what they like. And some people like what I write and some people don't. And that's perfectly fine. But at the end of the day, I'm the one who's doing writing and the reading. And if I'm not happy with what I'm sitting on and letting kind of flow out of me and through me, then the other people who are reading it are not probably going to be happy with it either. Great way to look at it. You were on about a year ago. And you were here to focus on one particular novel, uh, but to help people understand the different series you write, give us a brief rundown of each one. And we'll we'll start with uh, probably what you're most well-known for is the Nick Williams mystery series. That right. It later morphed into the adventures of Nick and Carter. Right. Tell us about that. Well, uh, so really everything I write happens in the same universe that I like to call the Nick and Carter universe. The first books were uh, the series, it's now complete, of 32 novels, mystery novels called the Nick Williams Mystery Series. The first book that came out was The Unexpected Heiress, and that was in on June 1st of 2016. Once that series wrapped up, then it became The Adventures of Nick and Carter, because I wanted to have a little bit more spaciousness in the writing and what I could actually bring to the table. But 
along with that, I also write a series of books that are set here where I live in Daytona Beach in the 40s. They're kind of Perry Mason at the beach, and they're just called the Daytona Beach books. Which I will say is my favorite of your series. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love them. And it's I live right now the street from where my main characters lived. So that's kind of fun. I drive by their house or where their house theoretically would have been pretty much every day. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there's also a contemporary series that I have that's called The Romantical Adventures of Whit and Eddie. They also live here, but they live here contemporaneously to me. Um, One of the characters from the Daytona Beach books, Ronnie Grisham, is still alive. He's 103, and he lives here also. So he's part of both of those series, which is, that's actually a lot of fun. Um, also, I have a, I have other kind of sideline series. Like right now I'm in the middle of writing um, a series of short stories where each one is set on a specific holiday. So as we speak, I'm writing uh, Columbus Day, 1939. And the short stories are all either Nick or, or Carter or both of them centered on them and so this book 1939 is before they met and it takes place actually at the golden gate international exposition which was to celebrate the building of the bay bridge and the golden gate bridge and was this big huge world's fair that was really amazing so i'm doing that and then i have some other kind of sideline stories that are romances that are basically characters that appear in some of the other books in some of the series their stories that are separate and apart from Nick and Carter or Whit and Eddie or any of the other people, the other characters who have their own main series. Now, so that's I, kind of the short and long of it. I've seen a lot of your, um, the short stories that you've been putting out on the different holidays. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, so it looks like you're like churning out a major novel all every day, which is not true because they are shorter. Uh, how is that going? Oh, it's going well. Um, Uh, This is number 17. Um, One of my favorite ones that I wrote was actually for Gay Freedom Day, which was 77. And it was right in the middle of the Anita Bryant Orange Juice boycott. And so that's in it a little bit right before the election of if that's the same year that fall in November is when Harvey Milk was elected to the Board of Supervisors and the Briggs Initiative, which was Proposition Six and a Half, was defeated, which is both of those were really great, really great things to happen in California and for the world, really. But yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. One of my favorite things is that the very first short story, New Year's Eve, well, it's actually New Year's Day, I got a really, somebody really didn't like the ending and I, I didn't go back and reply to their review, but they left me in one star and were basically like, you can't reward these people for their bad behavior. And I wanted to go back and say, uh, this is actually the prequel to another book that's going to happen. And this was set in 1979, where Nick and Carter chase down the bad guys, and they're not going to actually win in the end. But thanks for playing. I mean, I, didn't, I wanted to say that, but I didn't get a chance to. So what's fun about these short stories is they're set in all these different time periods, which allows me to like jump in and out of other things. And Nick and Carter are not the only narrators. I did one for Bastille Day where Nick's father and his stepmother both get uh, points of view, which was, that was a lot of fun because they had to deal with a surprise visit uh, from the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. And if you know anything about them, when they were 
when they did surprise visits, it was kind of like Henry VIII doing a surprise visit. They kind of arrived and took over and wanted to be the center of attention and considered you to be lucky that they were there. So it's, that was a lot of fun to write about. But I'm, I'm just enjoying it. I've got uh, Halloween, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, and Boxing Day left to write, I think. I think I may have left one out there. But um, so it's going well. And then I'll have just this complete series of holidays. And then I'll probably throw in some other ones as time goes by, because there are a few days that I thought, oh, I really should write about this obscure holiday like Arbor Day, which isn't that obscure, but uh, it just didn't fit in for the writing schedule at the time. But it's been a lot of fun. And you mentioned point of view. Are most of your stories written from first person point of view? Well, yeah, the um, Nick Williams is written from first-person narrator. Whit and Eddie is written from first-person narrator, and that would be Eddie as the narrator. Uh, the Daytona Beach books, there's five POVs, and they're all third-person. Mm-hmm. I never can remember the name of that. It's like Tom is talking about it, but it's Tom said this and Tom said that, not I said this and I said that. I can't. That's third-person I can't remember what that's called, but anyway, that's what it is. And with most of, most of the short stories, they're that, although some of them are Nick in first person. It just kind of depends on what feels right for that particular book. But the Daytona Beach ones I like because there's five different characters, and so we get to see things uh, through their eyes in all these different kinds of ways. This, we'll see the same story, you know, observed by different people who are in the middle of it, which is I, fun. I would think that's kind of difficult. Uh, it is hard, and in fact, I've, uh, I'm working on the fifth book, and I've been working on it for a year and change, uh, getting close to a year and a half, because I have, I'm having a little bit of trouble with that. Actually, that's a whole different, it's a whole different kettle of fish. But it does. It's very different than just sitting down and being Nick or being Eddie, and we just get on a train and just the train keeps going because mm-hmm. there's a lot of moving around and. I want to be clear about the the POVs and what the character stands for. And once I'm in it, uh, I can move back and forth pretty easily. And of course, I kind of feel like a, it's a placeholder that I just visit. And then once I kind of get accustomed to it, then the words flow pretty easily. Uh, this thing called Love is your most recent novel. It's a suspense novel. Right. And it's a Wit and Eddie. And I think it's safe to say that the Wit and Eddie series are typically romance novels. At least that's how you classify them on Amazon. Uh, And this is a show about mystery and romance and suspense thrillers, but there's something different with this novel. Uh, What is is that? And bring it, tell us today. Well, um, so yeah, the Whitney stories are romances that have different elements in them. And, the previous book uh, was actually a mystery. It was a, and it was kind of an amateur sleuth slash police procedural, which was a lot of fun. This is a suspense, and uh, there's three kind of suspense points that happen, and kind of just when you think everything's getting resolved, then something else happens, which is a lot of fun. It's set in the first week of September of this year, so five weeks ago, six weeks ago. Uh, from like sep- uh, August 31st to September 6th or 7th, something like that. And there's a lot of things that happen and they're compacted into a pretty short amount of time, but it makes sense within the context of the story. But the, the bottom line of the story is that Witt's mother, who is a widow, is the pastor of a megachurch in East Texas. 
And originally when Witt was growing up, his father and mother were grooming him to take over that church. But when he met Eddie, he came out and he already knew he was gay, but he hadn't figured out how to come out. And he was, when he met Eddie, he had just retired from playing for a fictional uh, NFL franchise in San Antonio called the Matadors. So what starts the book off is, um, (laughs) because it's kind of a running joke. Every book, they buy another house. (laughs) Um, because now they're the, the heirs to essentially the company that Nick and Carter start in the fifties, they now own that company. So they're, they're very wealthy. I love how they're all intertwined. I do too. I didn't realize some people really don't like that because I've gotten some feedback, which was very surprising. But it, it, yeah, that's one of actually my favorite things about all, doing all this is to have these different timelines that kind of sit on top of each other. Um, so what happens is they're moved to San Antonio because although they live in Daytona Beach, they own this franchise in San Antonio. And if you know anything about San Antonio, people are very hometown oriented there. Like it's a really big, small town. It's a great city. I love San Antonio so much, but it is, it does have kind of a very strong small town vibe to it. And my feeling was that once they get a, an NFL franchise, which eventually they probably will, that they're going to be really loyal to the team and they're going to want the owners to be loyal to them. And so would Eddie decide, okay, with everything that's going on with the coronavirus, we really shouldn't be going back and forth to the home games and then to the away games. So we'll just buy a house in San Antonio and, and live here for the season until like we went to the, go to the Super Bowl or the playoffs or however far it goes. And then we'll go back to Florida. So the first thing that happens is Eddie's mother just shows up because she's been kind of in quarantine because Eddie's sister is really connected to what's going on in the background with everything with the virus and has like basically put the hammer down and said, mother has to stay home. And mother just packs up and decides to drive to San Antonio. She lives in Austin, so she's up the road. Then the next thing that happens is Witt's mother announces that their mega church is going to be an affirming church, which comes completely out of out of left field. And if for those who might not know, affirming basically means that they're gay friendly, that they welcome in uh, openly gay members. This is a, basically a 180. It doesn't make any sense within the context of what this church has always been about and mm-hmm. And Witt doesn't react to it very well because he kind of sees it for what he thinks it is. That is, his mother is basically telling him that she's sorry by doing this without actually saying, I'm sorry. They're in the middle of having a fight and they end up getting in the car to go to, because she can't stay with them at the house. They end up getting in the, in the, she'd come to San Antonio. I forgot that part kind of out of, out of nowhere. And they had a fight and they end up in the car and in the, on their way back to her hotel, uh, someone essentially hijacks them by, because they're in an armored car because they're wealthy and they hijack, they get hijacked and in a long series of events end up kind of stuck in this warehouse and then kind of have to figure out their way out. And that all works itself out. And then, something else happens and something else happens, but what they uncover along the way is a Texas secessionist movement. That's kind of like the Republic of Texas, but the East Texas part of that. And uh, who is kind of, and turns out to be connected to the church in these weird, strange ways. And eventually they end up 
in Lubbock, which is Eddie's hometown. And uh, there's a big kind of like aha moment and Eddie has to do something really unpleasant and, uh, but it ends up being the right thing for a lot of people concerned. So a lot of the story is about them having to deal with everybody wearing masks and everybody having to stay distant from each other and how they handle that and how they deal that that's part of, or at least that's part of my issue in terms of writing the story. Every time I turned around, I would remember that I had forgotten that people can't smile. Like you can't Mm -hmm. say, well, he smiled because you don't know that they smiled. You can't see their Mm -hmm. face. So there's a lot of eyes crinkling and eyebrows raising and that sort of thing, but there's no very little smiling unless they're in a group of people that don't have masks on because they're in in an exposure group where they're all, they've all been exposed to each other already. So that part was, that part was really fascinating, but the story itself is a suspense and it's very romantic as well. And there's a little bit of mystery to it, but I can't really call it a mystery with, and, and really do any justice to that word. Well, but it's a lot show, of fun to write. On this show, suspense is A-OK. So it just doesn't happen to be in the title. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I had some other things I wanted to talk about. But before I get to those, since you brought it up, I want to talk about COVID-19. Uh, some writers are shying away from it, and others are facing it head on. I had one reader email me, and she said she was disappointed because my next book would be set during the pandemic. And she wanted to let me know that she wouldn't be able to read it. And I, she was relieved when I told her that my next two books will probably be taking place in 2019. And she said, oh, my God, thank you. But what was it to make that risky decision to say, I'm going to this, it's going to be in this story? Well, the Whitney series, when I sit down to write the book, that's the first day. So I started writing this book on August 31st. So that's the first day of the story. So that's what's happening. Um, it, I, I mean, it does kind of seem like, because I've seen a lot of people talking about that, and I've seen online discussions about this very thing among authors, but I just kind of feel like I've, I'm writing three different series, and two of them, they may talk about the flu pandemic, but they're not going to be talking about COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, Nick and Carter will be dealing with the AIDS epidemic. So, you know, but that's what happens. Like I've, I'm always writing about what's going on in the, in the time period that I'm writing about the, my first research point for the historical stuff, but even for this book is to go look at the newspaper and see what's going on. The whole idea of, um, because in a sense, I'm also talking not only about the coronavirus and COVID-19, I'm not just talking about that. I'm also talking about the rise of the alt-right and of militia movements stuff that's all very contemporary to what's going on. You're still living your life and you still have to live your life. Most people don't operate where they're in constant panic. And even in a war or in a pandemic where there's a lot of panic and a lot of fear, eventually people get exhausted from it and they find different ways to deal with it. People still live their lives. And that's what most everybody's doing here and now. It's still hard and it's not an easy thing. We do find ways to deal with whatever it is that we have to deal with because most people are quite resilient. You're making me think of a, a movie, and I wish to God I could think of the, na- the name of it. it. It takes place in England, and it's a little boy, and it's all his perspective during the bombings. Oh, and, wow. And the family, you know, as normal, when, the, when they hear the air raids, they go down into their basement, and they hear the bombs go off, and 
you know, one of the kids says, Oh, I hope that one was Mrs. Jones. She's a witch, <laughs> you know, and they all come out, they all came out and they look around to see what the damage has been done. And then they just right. continue with their day. Right. And it's very believable because that's the only way that you could have possibly survived unless you wanted to crawl into a rock and cry all the time. Some people did do that. Some people did have nervous breakdowns and there were, you know, people would freak out in the tubes and have, you know, and all that stuff. But at the same time, most everybody was have just dealing with whatever it is that they had to deal with. Back to Wit and Eddie. Tell us a little bit about their relationship and has, how it's gone from why you started the series and, and that sort of thing. Eddie is me, essentially. Um, our timelines diverge in 2014. I was at the time driving around the country and I was coming down the West coast. I'd been in up in the mountains and then came over to Seattle and it was like the beginning of spring. Uh, and as I got into Oregon, all the flowers were blooming and I stopped in Eureka, no, why And that's the point where the stories change. But so everything that happens with Eddie in the past is basically my past, essentially. So Eddie's mother is my mother, and my mother is in agreement with that. And Eddie's sister and sisters and brother are my sisters and brother, with their names changed and details changed. But still, everybody knows this is what I'm doing. What I wanted to write was essentially a story where I'm in a relationship, or Eddie is in a relationship with someone with a kind of person that I've been in relationships with before. And I wanted to show the contrast between the fact I'm a big, chunky guy. I'm a big bear of a guy. Mm-hmm. And Wit is a football player and has always been kind of this lean, well, not lean, but very sleek kind of machine of an athlete. He's tall and is muscled and blah, blah, blah. He's, he's kind of modeled on Rob Gronkowski and Tim Tebow. Mm-hmm. He has kind of Tim Tebow's backstory a little bit, not much. And he looks like Rob Gronkowski and actually plays the same position, tight end. And so I use Gronk, that's his nickname, as kind of the model for what Eddie would or what Wit would do and wouldn't do. But the other thing that Wit has that is kind of more like Tim Tebow is that he was brought up as an evangelical Christian and he has uh, was trained to be a preacher. And in this book, in fact, he confronts that the fact that he had been what, and he knew he was being trained to be a preacher and a pastor. And so he discovered that if he could play football really well, he could put off going into the ministry. And he admits that the whole reason that he got so involved, it wasn't like his primary thing, but it was always there. The reason why he wanted to be a football player. And even when he was six years old, he knew he had to be in the NFL was because the longer he could play football, the, the, then that would delay him having to be a preacher because they knew that was what his father had in mind for him. Another part of Wood's story is that he actually is adopted and his parents were given him when they were missionaries in Ukraine during the Soviet Union. There's a whole range of things that happen because Wood's birth father actually is, speaking of contemporary stuff, is probably somehow or another involved in the thing, the reason why Trump was impeached. He's connected to that. Mm-hmm. Now, I was writing about Wit being Ukrainian before all of that went down. 
But then when it went down, I was kind of, there was a part of me that was watching the story thinking, oh, this is, oh, this is great. This is really good in terms of I'm going to be able to milk this quite a bit. And so some of that happens here. I don't think we're going to, we haven't really gotten to the part of Wit's backstory where it's going to become really clear exactly what his birth father does and why he's so powerful and blah, blah, blah. Um, But their story is basically that they meet because the guy who is sort of the Nick after Nick passes away, his name is Bob Jenkins, keeps having these dreams where Nick is coming to him and saying, you need to get, it's not quite this direct, but basically you need to get these two guys together. And so when they meet, it's, um, Wit is very much in the closet and kind of almost immediately recognizes that Eddie is not. And they kind of meet under false pretenses, but then kind of sort that out. And then they fall in love really fast. It's very insta-love. But then, and then they get married really fast, which they shouldn't. And that's kind of one of the underlying stories is that everything they've done is really fast and probably shouldn't be done. But they're, they seem to be handling it really well. But not all the time and not in every moment, but for the most part, they are. Essentially, their relationship is one where they're teaching each other how to be confident about who they are. Mm-hmm. Wit, of course, has this public persona developed over time from his father and from being a player in the NFL, although he was never really a good player. He was good enough, but he wasn't a star, He and he didn't have sponsors or he's not like Gronk, for example, he wasn't out there selling stuff all the time, but he knows how to be in front of a camera and that sort of thing. And Eddie is spiritually oriented. He's a life coach of sorts. He's a channel and he has, he's always talking to Nick. He hears Nick talking to him all the time, giving him advice about what to do and not all the time with everything, but a lot, all of that kind of blends together. And that's part of the story and how they're, becoming, you know, a couple who really do support and love each other. And the book titles, by the way, are all uh, song titles from Noel Coward songs. This book is called This Thing Called Love, which actually is the Queen song. (laughs) But that's because what is this thing called love was too long of a title for my template for my covers. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, I just cut off the what is because in fact, it's not really a question. It really is a statement, this thing called love. And that is a lot of what the story is about, is them realizing the really true deep nature of the what they have together. That, of course, is accentuated by all the suspenseful things that happen around them and the stuff they have to confront and deal with as these things are going on. I don't want to derail the, the subject, but I'm going to anyway. Yeah, please. Uh, because I love the idea that between wit and eddie the the some people would consider it an opposites attract kind of thing yeah and you and i are both considered bears in in the gay community and i've had friends that were bears who would literally cry like nobody wants me nobody likes somebody built like me and and this sort of thing and and i'm like well are you going to the west hollywood and and dancing in these twink clubs (laughs) i'm like I've dated I've dated a couple of models, and this isn't a brag, but quite a few guys that would be stereotypically considered beautiful men, and it's because different people have different attractions. Right. It's kind of like the uh, Kenny Rogers song: "There's someone for everyone." Yeah, and what the people that that I've always dated 
have all been athletes of some sort or another, and I have dated an actual NFL player. So uh, he was retired by when we met, but and we it, it did go on for very long. But he showed me one thing that I found very interesting, which is because he was so clear and confident about his athletic, and I'm using probably the wrong word, but his comfort in his body was so obvious. He was probably one of the sweetest, gentlest guys I've ever met. But I've seen his, I've seen him on the the field. I mean, I can watch him playing and he's not kind of, I mean, he's playing NFL football. So full contact, you know, bam, bam, bam. But he was one of the most tender people I've ever met. And he's kind of one of the models for wit. But yeah, I've always, every boyfriend that I've ever had has been like that, either a model or an athlete or something like that. But it was my first real relationship. When we were breaking up, he said, he was, he kept saying, you're, you can have anybody you want. And I was like, you are out of your mind. What are you even talking about? And he goes, you're just not paying attention. Mm-hmm. You're just not paying attention to how attractive people find your body and your body type because you look like just this big teddy bear. And that's what everybody likes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I was like, oh, yeah. And then I began to realize what he was talking about. And I was like, oh, my eyes got opened. And then soccer players and football players and like all these, like where, where, were these guys always around? And I don't know the answer to that, but it has to do with, like you said, because that's what I had been doing. I'd been going to the wrong bars. Mm-hmm. I've been going, and I don't go to bars anymore, but I've been looking for love in all the wrong places, speaking of country music. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this show is going to air about a uh, little over a week from now. But as you and I are talking, today is National Coming Out Day. Almost all of your stories include a coming out experience. Uh, you've told me there's a reason why, but you haven't told me what that is. Well, the reason is because the first book, The Unexpected Eras, is an anachronistic coming out story. And I say anachronistic because it could have happened, uh, but it didn't. And nothing like it happened. So Nick and Carter have a confrontation with one of the sons of William Randolph Hearst, the guy who basically is operating the San Francisco Examiner at the time. And this is 1953. And Nick basically kind of puts him in his place in the middle of the top of the mark at the top of the Mark Hopkins in San Francisco. So it gets seen by a lot of people and his, he and Carter have their picture taken on their way out of the hotel and it kind of it's it becomes news, and it doesn't take very long. Within three or four years, pretty much anyone in the country knows that this is a gay couple. Mm-hmm. Now that's anachronistic, and it, 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 there's nobody who was ever like that until Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk is really the first person who is openly gay, says he's openly gay, is on television, is in the news, and everyone knows this is a gay man. So they're about 24 years early. But every one of the Nick and Carter books, every one of the Daytona Beach books, every one of the Wet and Eddie books, every not maybe not every short story, every one of the side romances I've written, they there's always the conversation about coming out. Either Nick talking about the effect of being openly gay. Of course, he doesn't talk about it in that way because he doesn't have that language in the 50s and 60s. But talking about like everybody knows, you know, who we are and, and what we represent and they're dealing with that. But, and so there's, they have these constant coming outs 
when they have to deal with someone who's basically recognizing who they are and it's another coming out. But it's not just that. It's also in every book, there's someone who shows up who has who either is coming out or dealing with coming out. They employ a lot of people because they build this big business and they will randomly meet their employees and they'll be like, where did you come from? Well, I was like, they employ a lot of ex-cops. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I was, you know, I was a police sergeant in Muncie, Indiana, and they figured out I was queer and they fired me. And so I knew about you guys. So I got on the first train I could get on and I came to San Francisco because I knew I would be fine if it came out here because I could get a job with you guys and blah, 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 blah. So in, in many ways, Nick's business is basically a home for wayward cops and firemen and people who are basically being fired because they're gay. There, and there's similar things like that in all of the stories. And I didn't really plan that. It's actually kind of organic. But it, it, one of the things I was thinking about today is that, and this is the reason why, you know, I mentioned that to you before we got on the call, is that being gay pretty much is a continuous process of coming out. You don't just come out once and it's done. Amen. You're that. always coming out. Yeah. Because... This kind of ties into something else that I I do like to talk about um, for the current, the contemporary series, because men in particular are assumed straight unless otherwise guilty of being gay. Mm -hmm. You're just always assumed to be straight. One of the things I do in the Witten Eddie books is I, because I do tend to think this way, is Eddie, when he's describing someone, he always mentions their race. And the reason why I do that is because someone Black said to me, you know what, writers, white writers generally will describe people as being of a non-white race, but will never say someone is white Mm -hmm. because everyone is assumed to be white unless proven otherwise. Yeah. If you start a new job or meet a new person or whatever, you have to come out again. You know, there's no sign on my head that says I'm gay. Right. So somewhere in a conversation, it's going to come up other than if you walk in the door and say, I'm gay. And that doesn't happen. So it is a lifelong process. Definitely. And and I do want to thank you very much. I read something that you wrote regarding this whole, the race issue in writing that's always assumed they're white unless you state otherwise. And as a result of that, I have tried very hard to not do that with my characters as well. Some kind of description that shows this is a white individual rather than make, make that assumption. So thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Well, I just, I wouldn't, I didn't, wasn't thinking about it until someone else informed me, someone who was black and they were very clear about it. They were like, yeah, just basic, because they said it very clearly, like white until proven guilty, Mm -hmm. because that is actually kind of what it is. And because of the time periods that I write in, I'm very aware of that thought of like white until proven guilty and guilty is the right word straight until proven guilty and guilty again is the right word. Let's go back to your book. It's called This Thing Called Love, and I will have a link to it in the show notes to purchase Great. your book on Amazon. And I'll put a link to your website as well, which is, I know you have all of your books listed there, and I think they all have links. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I'll put those both in the show notes to make it easy for you people to find you and to find your books. Thank you. And Frank, it has been a pleasure to have you back on, and I'm sure I'll have you back again. Well, it's definitely been great to talk to you again. 
congratulations with everything that's going on. I really love all your interviews. It's just been really awesome to have this very specific topic of gay mystery to be front and center. Lots and lots of fun. And thank you so much for having me. Hit the subscribe button wherever you hear our show so you don't miss a single episode. Tell a friend too. Thank you for listening.